All right, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, you could look in the seat in front of you and find a Bible there. We're looking at Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 20, or 35, which was read for us earlier. And if you're using the um, seat Bibles, you'll find that on page 730. In 2007, the Washington Post newspaper conducted an experiment. They asked world-class violinist Joshua Bell to spend a morning rush hour playing at a Washington, D.C. metro station. That's a subway, if you're not familiar with D.C. It's like a subway station. And they wanted to find out two things. First, would the beauty of Joshua's music transcend a mundane setting and an inconvenient time? And second, how would people react to beautiful art when that art is found in an unexpected environment? And Bell dressed in street clothes, and he had an open violin case beside him like any street musician would. And he played six classical pieces over 43 minutes. During that time, those involved in the experiment counted 1,097 people walked by. Of those 1,097 people, Only 27 of them gave him money, totaling $32 and some change. Only seven stopped what they were doing to hang around and take in the performance. The vast majority of uh, passerbys presumably were so wrapped up in their cares and stresses or their agendas and obligations that they missed what was right in front of them. Maybe some of them didn't like classical music. A number of them had uh, music on headphones and uh, never even heard what Bell was playing. Whatever the reason, it's amazing just how many people missed the talent and the beauty that was right in front of them. Regularly, Bell plays uh, to sold-out concert halls filled with people who pay hundreds of dollars to hear him play. But that morning in the D.C. metro station, the same man performing the same songs he performs each night had only seven people pause even for a minute. This is very much what today's passage is about. It's about Jesus playing his extraordinary music in the marketplaces of life. And many of the people in his own day, and many people still today, don't stop for a minute to take notice. I suspect that the reason that so many people walk right by is that Jesus is the wrong kind of Messiah. That's what this passage is wrestling with. Luke, in this story, is being really honest. He's coming clean and he's admitting that in many ways, Jesus is the wrong kind of Messiah. After all, for starters, Luke admits that even John the Baptist, the guy that God sent to prepare the way for Jesus, to point people to him, to herald him as God's coming one, even John had struggles and doubts about whether Jesus actually was God's Messiah. You can understand why. God had revealed to John what to announce about who this coming one would be. The coming one would be so great that John, the greatest prophet of of up to that time, was not even worthy to stoop down and carry his sandals. The coming one would come with power to execute God's justice and judgment, to separate the wheat from the chaff, to, to burn up God's enemies with unquenchable fire. In John's day, that seemed pretty clear as as to what that was going to mean. Jesus would deal with the Romans, right? 
that godless, heartless, oppressive, occupying force who tormented the people, crushed them under heavy taxation, and lived their immoral lives in God's holy land, mocking the true God as they did it. And along with the Romans were were some of the Jews who had colluded with the Romans, tax collectors, wealthy aristocrats who, who played the Roman games and got rich and powerful in the process, often off the backs of their fellow Jews. But the coming one would make all of this right when he came, John had proclaimed. He'd purify the land which the Romans had defiled. He'd punish the oppressors. He'd tear down the the unscrupulous fat cats and lift up the pious poor whose only hope was in God. That's why John told the people to prepare the way for the coming one. By changing their lives, by repenting of, of the ways that they had been handling Uh, their money and their power. John warned the people that anyone who had extra food and clothes should share with the one who had none. That tax collectors should collect no more than they were required to. That soldiers should not use their power to oppress or extort money from the people. John had courage. John had vision to say these things. He was getting the people ready for a new order of things when the coming one came and set things right. And what did John get for it? He got thrown into prison by Herod, the ruthless, corrupt, Roman-loving Jewish king. And then Jesus came. John thought he was the one. Jesus had, or John had even baptized him. And now in prison, John waited and waited and waited. Where was the powerful judgment? The the fire, the, the sifting like chaff of the wicked from the good. Where was the overthrow of Rome, the establishment of God's good kingdom? Where was John's ticket out of prison? Where was any of it? Instead, Jesus went around doing favors for Roman commanders, like healing the centurion's servant that we read about two weeks ago and extolling this Roman as having more faith than any of God's people. And Jesus took time to to help a poor widow in in the passage we skipped last week by raising her only son from the dead. And, And granted, this was a nice gesture, but how far does helping one widow go when the whole country is suffering under oppression? And so John, who's been waiting patiently in prison and and hearing these reports about Jesus, is beginning to suspect that Jesus is not the coming one like he thought. That Jesus is the wrong kind of Messiah. And so John sends some of his disciples to ask Jesus about this, maybe to confront him about it. Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Because if you're not, we're going to look for someone else. Explain yourself, Jesus. And Jesus, in reply, quotes scripture. First, he paraphrases Isaiah 35, 5 to 6, which says, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. These verses are are part of a passage in Isaiah which foretells a new exodus when God would once again come to rescue his people from their captivity. 
Then Jesus quotes Isaiah 61.1, the very passage that we saw way back in Luke 4, Jesus had opened his ministry with in the synagogue of Nazareth. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus is saying to John, John, I am the one scripture has foretold. I'm fulfilling these prophecies about me, doing what the leader of the new exodus is supposed to do. I'm giving sight to the blind. I'm giving hearing to the deaf. I'm raising up the lame. I'm cleansing lepers. I'm even raising the dead. Best of all, I'm preaching the good news to the poor, telling them that their salvation has arrived. But here's the problem, as I'm guessing John and everyone else in his day would see it. The poor that Jesus is preaching the good news to aren't those we necessarily think of as poor. And the salvation he's offering doesn't look like they think it should look. So Jesus is the wrong kind of Messiah. First, who are the poor that Jesus reaches out to in Luke's gospel? Well, in the passage right before today's passage, the poor is, is a widow who has, whose son has just died. She is definitely poor. In that culture, as in many ancient cultures, only men could own and inherit property. And so women were dependent on their husbands and their sons. And this woman has lost both. She is utterly vulnerable, utterly powerless. She is poor. But before her, we met a Roman centurion. He's rich and powerful. How is that poor? Well, he says to Jesus, I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. The centurion knows that he has no claim on God, no place among God's people. He doesn't deserve anything from God. As a Gentile, he's cut off from God's people. In that sense, evidently, he's poor. We could go on with other examples like Levi the tax collector and the unclean leper. But let's jump right to the point. And that is that as far as Jesus is concerned, the poor are not only those who are economically poor, but also others who have a need that only God can meet. And in many cases, they're alienated from God. And so God can't meet that need. In the words of Michael Wilcox, a commentator on Luke, in Luke, the poor are those who in the eyes of Jesus' contemporaries have no resources to meet their needs because they have no claim on God. The leper, the tax collector, the Roman centurion, they have no claim on God. They are spiritually disqualified. They have no business, no deserving coming to God to seek help for what they need. Maybe you feel like that this morning. Poor. But Jesus comes and says, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus is offering the poor salvation. But second, it's, it's not the kind of salvation that everyone expects. Everyone expects Jesus, if he's the coming one, to kick out the Romans, to, to bust John the Baptist and other like, others like him out of their unjust imprisonments and to set up God's righteous kingdom. But this isn't what Jesus does. This isn't the kind of salvation he offers. Bringing it closer to home, we also don't see Jesus in these stories telling the poor how they can go to heaven when they die even though this is the kind of salvation we expect, right? 
What kind of salvation does Jesus offer to those who are poor? To those who everyone thinks have no claim on God, no expectation that God will meet their needs. Well, to a destitute childless widow, Jesus gives her son back alive so that she can have a means of support and standing and status and defense and protection in her community. To a Roman centurion who knows he doesn't deserve to be anywhere close to God, Jesus gives the health of a valued servant. And Jesus gives him praise and acceptance and an assurance that his faith is valuable, that it counts for a lot with God. And to a despised tax collector and his sinful friends, Jesus gives an invitation to be part of God's people again, to belong, to matter, to contribute, to have hope that they too can change and find a new life among God's people. And to a paralyzed man, Jesus gives forgiveness of sins and a sound body so he can get up and walk and have the self-respect of being a contributing member of society. To a leper, Jesus gives cleansing, the removal of stigma and ostracism so he can be whole and clean and can be rejoined to society and to God's people. This isn't the salvation we expect, is it? We expect Jesus to tell people they can be saved from their sins, reconciled to God so they can go to heaven when they die. And while that's in the right ballpark to what Jesus is doing, it's not exactly what he's doing. David Bosch, who's written probably the most widely used textbook on missions, puts it this way. He says, going to heaven when we die relates to salvation like getting your spouse's inheritance when they die relates to marriage. It's part of the deal, but hopefully it's not the main reason you marry them. So what is the main reason for salvation then? Well, what Jesus is offering people who have no claim on God, the good news that he's proclaiming to them is this. It's himself. Jesus is offering himself. Jesus offers a chance to be in relationship with himself, to have a place at his table. And because Jesus is God, as we're going to see, this is a chance to be reconciled to God, to have your sins forgiven. Yes. And more than that, the salvation Jesus offers is a place in God's family. It's to be brought back in to to belong again to God's people and God's kingdom. A community where where good things are happening, where things are being remade and restored. And so if you need cleansing, then salvation means you get cleansed. And if you're blind, it means you get to see clearly. And if you need to be healed, it means you're healed. And if you're financially destitute, it means you get provided for. Jesus' salvation is holistic. It's a new kingdom, a community where everything broken is getting put back together again, where things are being set right and made whole. And yes, we look forward to heaven, which in the Bible is is actually a new creation on the earth. Because that's when the salvation job is finally completed. And we get to know and experience God in ways we can't now. So if that's the salvation that Jesus brings, why do Christians today sometimes limit salvation to going to heaven when we die? Well, I think it's because our culture has been 
so thoroughly steeped for so long in Plato, though a lot of us don't even know that. And we can hardly see Jesus without our platonic lenses on. You see, Plato believed that the soul is better than the body and that the spiritual is better than the material. And so the best thing that can happen to us, according to Plato and according to the Western world, which has been so influenced by Plato, the best thing that can happen to us is to escape this corrupt world and to fly away to another. But Jesus did just the opposite. He left heaven to come down and to embrace this world. Not to help us escape from this world, but to remake this world, to reclaim it and transform it so that we can live with God in this world forever. This world as it's been transformed by Jesus. The book Evangelical Convictions tells this story. It says, one of the most beautiful sites in the picturesque city of Cambridge, England, is King's College Chapel, a magnificent Gothic building completed during the reign of Henry VIII. One of the great attractions of the chapel is a painting by one of the old masters, Peter Paul Rubens, entitled The Adoration of the Magi. But in 1974, in an act of political protest, a vandal entered the chapel and defaced this magnificent painting by scratching the letters IRA deeply into the canvas. It was thought that this irreplaceable work of art was ruined forever. But soon there appeared a notice alongside it that announced, it is believed that this masterpiece can be restored to its original condition. And it was in all of its glory. This is the good news that Jesus preached to the poor. That the masterpiece, which is each of our lives and our relationships, and this world that we live in together, though defaced by sin, can and is being restored to a condition even better than the original. That was what Jesus was up to. That's what Isaiah prophesied about, and that's what the Jews, like John the Baptist, were expecting. But Jesus was being so slow about it. He still is being so slow, isn't he? (laughs) And Jesus was including the wrong people. And he wasn't dealing with the evil people who were working against this salvation. After all, John was still in prison. And so Jesus must be the wrong kind of Messiah. Well, in verses 24 to 28, Jesus challenges the common conception from his day of what the Messiah ought to be. A conception that even John fell prey to. And a conception we fall prey to when we believe the TV preachers who tell us that Christianity is all about succeeding and prospering. What does Jesus ask the people after John's disciples leave? He asks, what did you go out into the desert to see? More than a reed swaying in the breeze, I hope. What did you go out to see? A rich man wearing expensive clothes and indulging in luxury? No, that's Herod. That's the evil guy who put John into prison. If you want to go find a Messiah like that, go to the palace. But let me tell you, I have not come to bump off Herod and move into his palace. The kind of kingdom I bring has its roots in the wilderness, not the palace. 
And if you're looking for fancy clothes and for success and influence and a, a palace lifestyle, then I'm the wrong kind of Messiah for you. But Jesus adds, don't be confused by the packaging because your salvation, uh, the packaging that your salvation is coming in. Because I am bringing a great kingdom indeed. And Jesus quotes Malachi 3.1, which says, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And this is a prediction, if you turn back to Malachi 3, that before God himself returned to his people, God would send a messenger to prepare his way. That messenger is John, Jesus says. That prophecy is being fulfilled. And who does that make Jesus? Well, it makes him God. And so Jesus concludes, verse 28, when God arrives to establish his kingdom, that kingdom is so great that even the least in this new kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. And among those born of women, there's no greater than John. Go through all, all through history. Go all through the Bible. Think of Abraham and Moses and David and Isaiah. Think of Plato and Alexander the Great and Caesar Augustus, Julius Caesar. None of those greats was as great as John the Baptist, Jesus says. And yet, Jesus concludes, the one who is least in the kingdom I am establishing is greater than John. Why? Because in Jesus, God has come in awesome glory to be among his people and to begin the restoration of all things. And yet God isn't taking up residence in a palace. He isn't dressing in fine regalia. If you're looking for riches and affluence, his kingdom isn't the one you're looking for. No, God's kingdom is for the poor. For those who have no claim on God, no qualification that God should help them or bless them. And yet God welcomes such people into his kingdom. And because his kingdom is so great, the least of them, even the lowliest tax collector, is greater than John. Would, would you turn to someone next to you and say, if you follow Jesus, you are greater than John the Baptist. That's hard to believe, isn't it? <laughs> Peter's up here complicating things. Um, well, there's one more reason that Jesus is the wrong kind of Messiah. And that is that he drinks any parties too much. He hangs around with the wrong kind of people and invites the wrong people into his kingdom. The seedy people, the crude, rough people, the godless people. How can this kind of people mix with God in his kingdom? Yet Jesus goes to their parties and he has way too much fun doing it. What a pair John the Baptist and, and Jesus are. John wears hair shirts, right? He, he lives in the desert. He fasts a lot. He abstains. He exists off bugs and whatever else he can find. And meanwhile, Jesus has a reputation for partying with sinners and drinking too much. And getting used, after getting used to John the Baptist, getting to know Jesus must have been like whiplash, 
how could these two people both be representing the same God? And so the religious people have written them both off. I mean, don't you agree in a way? We don't have a lot of space in our church pulpits or or our media, media programming for someone like John the Baptist. I mean, some hairy mountain man who, who lives by himself in the woods. I mean, how sane and balanced of a guy do you really think John the Baptist was? And would we be comfortable with Jesus going to all those parties with those kinds of people? What if he starts bringing some of them to church? You know, most of us are middle class. And, and what do middle class people value more than anything else? Well, right up there at the top of the list, they value safety and security, right? I mean, just look at the suburbs. They don't want extremes. They want medium, middle class, not to rock the boat, not to get too radical, just to be regular. And so the middle class tend to worship a tame God. Well, guess what? The true God is not middle class. C.S. Lewis remarks, God is the great iconoclast. God is not tame. God is not predictable. God is not middle class respectable. And if we choose to follow Jesus, he won't let us stay there either. And, And because many of the religious people back then refused to budge, they missed John and they missed Jesus. As far as they were concerned, Jesus was the wrong kind of Messiah. Well, where where does that leave us? God sends his king, his savior, to set up his kingdom. And like a world-class violinist in, in street clothes in a metro station... God doesn't show up in a way that we expect or, or recognize or even in a way that we're comfortable with. And so what do we do? Well, we have two choices and Luke lays them out for us in verses 29 and 30. There Luke tells us how two groups of people responded to John the Baptist, the one who prepared the way for Jesus. One group, the Pharisees and the experts in the law, Luke says, rejected God's purposes for themselves. Because God had a good purposes. He had plans for these religious people. After all, think what, what a resource and a blessing they could have been. They, think, think how much they knew about God's word. Think, uh, um, think of how uh, energetic and committed they were to, to things religious. Think how much influence they had among all the synagogue goers, the, the churchy people. Think how much they had to offer. God had a plan for them, but they rejected it. Why? Because God didn't show up looking like he should have. God didn't follow his own rules as best as these religious people could understand them. God was too extreme, too unholy, too unsavior-like. You see, Luke tells us that these religious people had had gotten off track when they had rejected John the Baptist. Because what had John called them to do? To repent, right? And and remember, to repent means to to have a paradigm shift. To repent means to to take a new outlook, a new perspective on things. It, It means that you realize that you've been looking for God in the wrong directions. And so you turn around and you start looking the other way. But these people wouldn't repent. 
Because John didn't look like he was from God. He was too weird. He, he was too Spartan. He was too extreme in the wrong ways. And he told them that to repent and to open up to God practically meant to start sharing your stuff. And to stop using your privilege to get ahead yourself. And to start caring practically for those who are left behind. Because when God's kingdom came, John understood that's a big part of, of what it would be about. Well, I guess it would be anachronistic to say that to the Pharisees and experts of the law that, that this whole message of John seemed to be un-American and uncapitalist. But, but regardless, they rejected it as being not from God. And as a result, they missed God's coming and they rejected God's purposes for themselves. The second group responded differently to John. They did repent. They opened themselves up to the unexpected. To, to a God who came to bring good news to the poor. And yet, even then, when, when God did come in Jesus, it wasn't what they or even John expected. But these people, among them tax collectors and sinners, they'd already let God surprise them once. And, and so they were ready to be surprised again. They had learned to expect the unexpected from God. And Luke says in this, they acknowledged that God's way is right. Even if they didn't understand it, even if, if it didn't make sense, they were open to whatever. And so when Jesus came, they could receive him. How about us? Have you been resisting God because God doesn't look like you think he should? Maybe God is too liberal. Maybe God is too conservative. Maybe God is too loose and accommodating. Or maybe God is too intolerant and narrow. Maybe God keeps the wrong kind of company. Are you willing to repent? To let God be the God that he is in Jesus Christ, even if he surprises you or challenges you? And is there maybe a way that God has been trying to get your attention even this past week? But you've been missing it because it doesn't look like you think of as coming from God. Maybe you should look again. Maybe it's God in one of his many surprising disguises. Let's pray. God, thank you that you remain a mystery. That you insist on staying beyond where we can touch you and grab you and mold you into our boxes where we think you should fit. And I pray um, for each one of us that you would give us the willingness to be surprised to have you break out of our boxes. The willingness and the openness maybe to see you in a place that we don't expect to find you. Thank you that you're seeking each one of us. That you're seeking to reconcile us to you and then to make us a part of the restoration of all things. In Jesus' name, amen.